Beautiful. Matthew 16, please. Matthew 16, everyone's Bible open. Page 1523 in that book rack Bible. And we're looking today at another passage in this beautiful book of Matthew. We're in this little section where Jesus has been kind of getting into it with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Remember last week he asked, he was asked to show a sign and no sign would be given to a wicked and adulterous generation but the sign of Jonah. And so Jesus has been kind of going back and forth with these religious leaders. And we've seen this all through the book of Matthew. And this section that we're in right now is actually a section that is highlighting the opposition to Jesus. And this is actually going to become really full-blown by the time we come to chapter 23 where Jesus has some very stinging words to say to the Pharisees. Uh, not that he didn't love them, but uh, he had to kind of, you know, bring truth, truth statements. And uh, so we're going to get there down the road, but today we'll, we'll see a little window of this as he, as he wants to take his disciples into a debrief section. They've been listening to this banter between Jesus and the, and the Pharisees and Sadducees, and Jesus now is taking his disciples into a boat, and they're going across the Sea of Galilee, and I think he has in mind to use this little journey as a debrief time to kind of go over what they just took in with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Jesus. But we're going to learn today that the disciples were really not on the same page with Jesus at all. And they didn't understand what he was saying. He's trying to tell them something very important and it's going right over their head. And, uh, and I don't know, that never happens to us, right, uh, at all. Um, we're, we're really like the disciples. So we're going to see this beautiful text this morning. Let's read it and then I'm going to kind of unpack it. Verse 5. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You have little faith. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. All right, what I want to show you first, I want to show you a picture of Jesus that is going to kind of uh, weave through this entire text. I want you to see the glory of Christ in three things. I want you to see the glory of Christ first in his warning his disciples. He wants to warn his disciples. There's an urgent message that he wants them to understand. This is part of the debrief he wanted to have with them. Secondly, I want you to see the glory of Christ in his extreme beautiful patience and long-suffering when his disciples are clueless to what he's saying. Then I want you to see the glory of Christ and how he opens the heart and the mind to cause his disciples to see what he's talking about. These are three beautiful portraits, really, of the life of Jesus and what he does for his followers. He warns us, he's patient with us, and he helps us see what we need to see. Amen? So let's put this in the context of the, of the text itself. Uh, what we see in this text are three movements that are going to show us these beautiful portraits of Jesus. The first movement is found in verses 5 through 7 when we learn that our preoccupation with what's unimportant can easily keep us from seeing what is. 
I mean, here the disciples were obsessing over the fact that they forgot to take bread, verse 5. That's all they could think about when they got in the boat. Jesus said something profound, and they missed it completely. They heard a word, and it immediately brought them to bread. They heard yeast, and they thought of bread. And then they thought of the fact that they didn't bring bread. Just like some of you are hearing the word bread, and you realize you don't have any bread at home, and you're going to have to stop on the way home. But then you just realize that you forgot your wallet because it's in your gym bag at home which has dirty gym clothes that you have to wash when you get home, and you haven't heard a word I've said. (laughs) And that's exactly what's going on here. Being preoccupied with the unimportant frequently keeps us from seeing what is. I read an article this week about there are now more accidents due to texting and walking than texting and driving. And it's true. I saw a kid, a high school kid from Castro Valley High, walking down Redwood Road this past week, and he came to Somerset there, and he never even looked up. He just kept, he's looking down at his phone, and he's walking against a red light, and he just walks right into the crosswalk. Cars, you know, beep, beep, and he kind of looks up sort of like, you're interrupting my text. (laughs) I mean, that's the way it is. Something unimportant missing something really important. This is the way it is. I mean, this could this could happen in all kinds of places in life. I talked to someone recently who was coming to the realization that they poured their whole life into their business and lost their family in the process. I mean, it was sort of a retrospect of, what did I do? I tried to build a business and I lost my kids and my wife. Regret takes place when we preoccupy ourselves with the unimportant, relatively speaking, and missing what is most important. That might, be due, uh, that might be you in a situation right now, a relationship that needs attention. You're not giving it attention. You're too focused on your cell phone or your job or something else of minor concern. Or maybe something at your work really demands your attention and you're off in trivial matters. That happens too. We're constantly trading off what's really important and instead substituting it with things that are minorly important. And so here the disciples are obsessing over the fact that they forgot bread. They were concerned about getting hungry. And and we have to just be a little light on this because they were going from one side of the lake to the other. Jesus was taking them, as we'll see next week, into a place called Caesarea Philippi. This was a dark place. This was a dangerous place. This was a field trip where they probably realized when they got in the boat, oh, wait a minute, we're, you know, there's no McDonald's, no Chick-fil-A, no Chipotle, no you know, in and out. What are we going to do? And so they were thinking about food. They were concerned about getting hungry. Um, but, but Jesus had a different concern. I mean, verse 6 reminds us that Jesus was concerned about the danger of false teaching and the bad spiritual influences that are out there. And so he wants to debrief them about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, the disciples were concerned about their hunger, but Jesus was concerned about their spiritual vulnerability. I mean, he had a different agenda for them that day. And I just, I, let's just stop right here for a second. And let's see this in our own lives. I mean, if Jesus could speak into your life today about something of importance, um, what would it be? And, and it's really easy to kind of miss the fact that, guess what? He does have something to say to you of great importance. Every time you open his word, he has something to say to you of great importance. 
uh, as you begin your day, he has things he wants to communicate to and show you from his word and from life's experiences that are greatly important. And, and yet, we're sort of focused on the stuff that isn't all that important and we, and we miss it. Um, I've been reaching out to a guy I met a while back. Um, he's not a Christ follower and he lives out of the area, but we met at an event and I got to know him a little bit and shared my life with him. He's kind of going through a crisis, and so I've been reaching out to him. And, uh, and he knows I'm a pastor, and, and he's slowly kind of opening his heart a little bit to some things. So then one day, a couple weeks ago, I was talking to him on the phone, and he said to me, and I think he was thinking this would really get me excited, like happy. He said, uh, he said hey, guess what? I, I, I kind of thought about you and some things you've been saying, and I decided I'm going to go to church. I'm going to get help. And so there's a church right around the corner from where I live. It's called the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. <laughs> and my, uh, you know, my anticipatory like joy suddenly was like, uh, you know, and I was just kind of frozen. Let's just stop right there. Let's hit the pause button because I'm, he, I know stuff he doesn't know, okay? He doesn't know anything about doctrine. He doesn't know anything about what that church, the church he recommend or that he thought believes about Jesus, many of the same terms. And, and you know here at Three Crosses, we're not out there bashing other churches and stuff, but I'm telling you a real story, a guy that I'm praying for, a guy that I'm concerned about come to know Christ, and here he's walking into a place that does not teach the biblical Jesus that I believe in can change a person's life. And so in this moment, okay, now let's take off the pause button, and the next thing he says to me is, but the doors were closed and, and no one was there. <laughs> uh, I go... I go, there's other churches. <laughs> I go, you know, you, and this was on a Sunday too. I don't know, so what time? It was just kind of a weird story. So I've given him some other recommendations, and happily I've heard that he's been checking those out. He went to a meeting this last week in a good evangelical church. I'm going, thank you, Lord. Now the reason I'm telling you the story is because he doesn't know what he doesn't know. And I know some stuff that he doesn't know, but the big point is, as a pastor, I think a lot about where people are getting input, where people are getting uh, teaching, and, and it's, it's, it's scary to me sometimes. Uh, here's another quick little story. Uh, there was a gal in our college ministry years ago when I was doing college pastoring here at the church. She was a bright young lady. Uh, she got a scholarship to go off to university, and she'd come home on, uh, you know, breaks and so forth. And I watched this girl just, I mean, she was an amazing uh, just loved God's Word, loved to hear teaching, and she just ate it up. And then she kind of disappeared. Um, you know, she got busier in college, didn't see her for a long time, and then she moved away. And a few years later, she came back and happened to visit the church. And by this time, I was the senior pastor of the church. She was sitting in the crowd, um, and I preached. And after the service, she came up to me and, oh, it's great to see you. And I was I just so happy to see her. She said, could we have coffee? She had kind of a serious look on her face. She said, could we have coffee this way? I said, great, I'd love to. You know, and so we met down here at Starbucks. And, um, and I couldn't believe within about the first 10 minutes of the conversation, she was so upset at me because I was taking the Bible literally. And I was teaching on that particular Sunday. There was some, it was... I was talking about sin, and we were talking about how we need to repent of sin, and she was so offended. And I'm thinking, who, wait a minute, are you an alien? Like, what happened to you? And we had this very robust conversation, but what I discovered in the conversation was that she went off to college, and she suddenly started comparing things that she was learning in college 
with things that she had been taught here in, in the church and, and she started buying the line of what the university professors were saying about, you know, the, the veracity, canonicity, doctrine of Scripture, the inerrancy, the infallibility of Scripture to be thrown out the door, all this stuff. She just bought it, hook, line, and sinker. And I'm not even sure what the process of that was, but it was just like this stunning realization that here was a person that I thought was squared away, and then she went out and she just bought it, hook, line, and sinker. Now, listen, I... Still prayed for her. I don't know what the end story of her life was, but we had a good conversation. I don't know what happened, but, but knowing that story alone, I know there are people sitting here today, and I think about what are people taking in with books and TV programs and religious systems that are not healthy and possibly harmful. The enemy is so clever in the way he sidetracks us and gets us going down roads that seem first to be close to where we should be, but in time, they get further and further away. They're like parallel lines that start, right? You know, you take two lines and you put them just right together and you just separate them just by a, just a smidge. And at, at the apex where they come together, they're really close. But if you go over time, they get wider and wider, further away, right? There's probably a mathematical, you know, term to that. I don't know what it is. But anyway, it's, uh, there's, there's this reality that we don't realize that something starting so small and so obscure can turn into something huge. And that's what Jesus wants his disciples to see. This warning is based on something little that is going to turn into something really big. Uh, let's just stop right here for a minute and look at some scripture. We'll put them on the screen. You could jot them down if you want to in your notes. In Matthew 7, 15, we've already covered this. Jesus said, watch out for false prophets. Uh, Paul said in Acts 20, he said, I know that after I leave, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard, Paul says. 1 Corinthians 13, 16, Paul writes again, he says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith. Colossians 2, 8. Paul writes, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. The writer of Hebrews, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. 2 Peter 3.17, therefore dear brothers, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. Or 1 John 4, 1, test the spirits. Don't believe every spirit. Test them. See whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Do you see the, the theme there? It's be careful. Watch out. There's like all these messages and things that can easily just start a little bit of erosion in your life. This little grain, this little yeast cell that comes in and becomes in, you know, uh, unstoppable in your life. So that's the first little movement. This preoccupation with what's unimportant sometimes keeps us from seeing what is. But then, verses 8 through 11 tells us something about Jesus. You know what I love about Jesus? Well, everything. <laughs> but specifically here, what I love about Jesus is that he knows the best way to get our attention back on what's important. And look at how he does this. The disciples are not tracking, like sometimes we're not tracking. They're thinking bread. They're thinking hunger. He's thinking vulnerable, possibly misled. So what does he do? He, he, he simply does this by showing them what he's able to do. Now, 
if you look at the text, um, look at verse 8. He says, you of little faith. Now, why did Jesus say that? They're talking about bread, and he says, you of little faith. He starts asking questions. Doesn't, doesn't give them a sermon. Just ask questions. Do you, uh, hey, guys, you remember when we fed the 5,000? You remember the little guy that had the sack lunch? And, and he had some loaves and some fishes, and I prayed to my Heavenly Father, and you remember how 5,000 men, not including women and children, all ate till they were satisfied? You remember that, guys? Oh, yeah, yeah we remember that. And oh, by the way, do you remember the 4,000? Three months later, in a different area where 4,000 people, just men showed up, uh, men counting 4,000, that means there were plenty more than that, counting women and children. And do you remember that we fed them till they were full and satisfied? Do you remember that? And I, I can only imagine Jesus sort of like looking at these guys in this boat, kind of going, uh, you think I can cover this? <laughs> you know, how many of us are in this boat, guys? We've, you've seen me do the miraculous, and you're, you're obsessing over bread? Hello? I think I can make some bread if we need some bread. Now, Jesus doesn't say that. I'm, in, I'm sort of extrapolating, but I, I think the point of Jesus is sort of getting the juices going here a little bit with these guys. And in fact, what he's showing them, this is beautiful, what he's showing them is he's showing them that, um, that he is their provider. Uh, he, he's reminding them that he's a provider. He's taking their obsession and he's turning it into an opportunity for a teaching moment. They're obsessing about bread, so he's going to say, he could have said, and he already did say in, in John 6, he said, I am the bread of life. If you eat from me, you will, you will always be satisfied. Um, think of the times when we are like obsessing over the fact that we're not good enough. You ever do that? I'm never going to measure up. And what does Jesus often do when we're obsessing over being good enough? Jesus comes along and he just starts asking questions. Well, like who really is good? And like you're never going to be good enough. But guess what? I am. I mean, Jesus always takes our obsession and he turns it an opportunity to teach us something about who he is. He's our provider. He's our righteousness. He's our healer. He's our comforter. He's our sanctifier. All these beautiful pictures of who he is. This is Jesus. He reveals who he is. And that's what he does here with his disciples. He's, he's wanting them to see a picture. Oh, you're the provider. We can trust you. This is a beautiful point. So once, once the disciples see who he is, now for a second time, look at verse 11. So he says to them again, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, our obsessions over lesser things create teaching moments for Jesus to speak into our lives and bring us back to center. I have a feeling a crowd this size, there's some of us who, who need to get back to center. And let's just be honest, there's probably a point in every one of our day where we need to come back to center. I do. I get off track. And Jesus here is a, oh, I just love this about Jesus. I love the fact that he's just, he's walking these guys back into a teaching moment to show them who he is. Which brings us to the last little movement of this text. First, we see the glory of Christ in the warning. We see the glory of the Christ in his patience on helping them get back to center, see where they need to be. And then thirdly, um, we see the glory of him opening their eyes. Verse 12, if there's something worth thinking about, Jesus basically says it's the reality of systems, religious systems that can create damage in your walk with God. 
Now, basically, we're going to talk for the few remaining moments here. We're going to talk a little bit about Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, who were the Pharisees and Sadducees? They were the religious, you know, leaders of the day, primarily. Um, they were different. They were, in fact, they were usually at odds with each other. The Pharisees and Sadducees did not get along. They fought, but on the case of putting Jesus on a cross, they worked together. But here's what made them different. The Pharisees, you know, they, nobody really knows exactly when they started or when the Pharisees became a sect of Judaism, but it's likely that during the intertestamental period, probably around 150 B.C. or so, uh, when there was a Seleucid invasion into the land of Palestine and there was, there, there was a growing Hellenization among the Jewish people, which means the Greek culture was pushing down and wanting the Jews to assimilate, there was a, a thing known as the Maccabean Revolt, uh, led by uh, no other than John Maccabees, and and, and it was the Maccabean revolt that sort of said, we're, you know, we're not assimilating anymore. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not giving in. And out of that came a guy by the name of John Hyrcanus who led a, a, a revolt himself and sort of put Israel back on the map in terms of the purest of, their, of the faith, the faithful. And so the Pharisees were this group of people that kind of stepped out of Judaism to say, we're not assimilating, we're not letting the Greek culture change us, we are, you know, they were just dogmatically strong. And they, they paid a price for it. They took hits, they took persecution, and if you were a Pharisee, you were like had a target on your back. And not too, because of that, not too many people became Pharisees. And, and the common people, the blue-collar people, really looked up to the Pharisees because they were willing to take the charge on this whole pish, on the whole issue of purity, sanctity to the doctrine, to the text. But by the time Jesus comes along, there's been a lot of years that have followed, a lot of the Pax Romana, there's been a lot of peace brought in. Uh, Jewish people were not, you know, um, under the same kind of persecution. The Maccabean revolt had moved on. There was, there was sort of peace back in the land, and there was sort of assimilation in some ways, not to the Jewish purists, but, but you could kind of be a Pharisee and kind of posture it, not really live it out. You kind of get the, you know, the reputation without having to pay the price. And so the Pharisees became no other than sort of pretenders for, the, for a large part. There were good Pharisees. There were Pharisees that stayed true to the law and wanted to stay pure. The word Pharisee literally means the separate ones. And there were good ones. But the, the vast majority of Pharisees were sort of this religious pretender group. And that's the group that Jesus is talking about here. And that's a very uh, relevant issue for the church today. Because there's a lot of us today who have this reputation of being good, but we're really not that good. We sort of posture it. This happens in churches, happens with leaders, pastors. We've all, let's face it, we've all pretended at times. We've pretended to look something that we're really not. And that's the mark of Pharisaism, which is... Sort of, if you're taking notes, just the, the be, Jesus is saying to his disciples, be on guard against religious systems that are mostly about external formalism. Everything but the heart. All the stuff on the outside, nothing on the inside. Be careful about that. Be wary about that. Uh, in fact, the Jewish Talmud actually had categorized seven different kinds of Pharisees. And I won't go through all of them. I think our time is a little stretched right here. But there was the wait a little Pharisee. This is the Jewish people saying about Pharisees. There was the wait a little Pharisee who always had an excuse for putting off what he knew what was good to do. 
uh, there was the bruised and bleeding Pharisee. This was the Pharisee that instead of looking at a beautiful woman would close his eyes and purposefully walk into a wall as to bruise or bleed so as to keep himself pure. I mean, you see the ridiculousness of this? Uh, there was the, the humped-backed Pharisee who walked around in stooped-over mock humility. There was the shoulder Pharisee who wore, as it were, ostensibly on his shoulder the good deeds that he had done. Oh, look at this. Look what I've done. These are the Pharisees. And of all the categories of the Talmud that talks about Pharisees, there was only one out of seven that was known as the God-fearing, God-loving Pharisee, the one that was a true son of Abraham. So six out of the seven were corrupt versions of the sect of Phariseeism. And these, who these guys were. But let's, you know, let's not get too, uh, I, I know some of us are kind of listening to that. We go, yeah, I've known a few Pharisees myself in my time. <laughs> well, chances are if you're saying that, you're probably one. You know, it's because this is one of the tenets of Phariseeism, to find fault in other people, to become a judge. In fact, all through Matthew, I, I took a special note. We don't have time to go through them all, but uh, Matthew talks about uh, the Pharisees being self-righteous. Uh, Jesus, you know, he portrays Jesus' teaching of Phariseeism being self-righteous. Remember the way they pray, the way they give, the way they fast. Matthew 6 uh, Matthew talks about Jesus showing how hypocritical they were, that they, with their lips they praise God, but with their lives they're distant, they're far away from God. Matthew 5, 7, uh, 15, 7 rather, uh, they were prone to judgmentalism. Remember the log in their own eye, judging the speck in a brother's eye. Matthew 5, uh, 7, 5, the log eye scenario. Uh, they were lovers of ritual and man-made rules. Uh, they loved what we know as the Mishnah and, and the Talmud itself. They put equal weight on the tradition of the law, the rabbinical law, as well as the law itself. Listen, the reality is all of us have some Pharisaism in ourselves. And that's because we're all tempted very quickly to kind of put on the external. And Jesus is telling his disciples, be careful, because that can just start slipping in and it can become like a, a yeast in a, in a lump of dough to just permeate that bread. And you know, I've been doing a lot of reading lately on why millennials are leaving the church, and one of the reasons why millennials are leaving the church, we're talking 20s and 30-year-olds are leaving the church today because they see too much hypocrisy in leadership. And people that call themselves Christians are not living the Christ life. And somehow in church, we're just so good at pretending. You know, we forget we're all sinners. We forget we're all broken. Your pastor's broken. Your pastor's a sinner. But saved by grace, thank you, Lord. But there ought to be a culture in our church where we confess our sins to one another in appropriate places. We have small groups and communities where we share our burdens, where we tell people where we're falling down, where we need prayer, where we need help to get up. All of that becomes a real expression of faith and a real beautiful signature of the gospel in that the gospel is not calling perfect people to live moral lives or, or people to conform lives to moral uh, or conform their lives to some moral uh, attribute, but that the gospel says that we are all morally bankrupt and the gospel is what gives us righteousness. Jesus gives us righteousness. And it comes through faith in Him. So these were the Pharisees. They were externalists. Anybody here? Just think about it. Then there were the Sadducees. The Sadducees took pride in they were different from the Pharisees. They were not the blue-collar workers. They were the aristocrat, aristocrats. 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 
You can see where Disney comes in in every fashion of our lives. Uh, they, they were the elite. They were the intellectuals of the day. They were the rationalists. They came along saying, oh, we love Scripture. In fact, they were more uh, conservative with Scripture than the Pharisees because the Pharisees included the Mishnah, which was the rabbinical tradition of the Mosaic law. The Sadducees came along and said, no, 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 we are purists. We only follow the Word. We only follow the Torah. We only take the Scripture. Now, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But they didn't believe in any supernatural work because the Old Testament in the Torah doesn't speak, at least they said, did not speak of the afterlife. They didn't believe in an afterlife. When you're done, you're done. They didn't believe in resurrection. You're done, you're done. They didn't believe in heaven or hell. That's just the way the Sadducees looked at it. They were the rationalists. They believed, they had all this highfalutin mindset where they kind of looked upon everybody else as like, well, you know, if you had my degree, you wouldn't think that way. They were the top of the... Hebrew schools of the day. And Jesus basically is saying about these guys, he's saying beware of, of, of people who take pride in a rational approach to faith apart from the supernatural work of God. Intellectualism void of transformational power. I don't know, if we're honest, I think we look around today and I think those are the two, the two really you know, possible flows that people get into. You either become a Pharisee in that you're pointing out everybody else's problem and sin and, oh, you're a sinner and you're a sinner. And, you know, like when you sit in church, you're thinking, oh, I wish so-and-so could have heard this message. That's a Pharisee. It's not about you. It's about this other person. Oh, I don't need any of this. It's the other person. That's the Pharisee. That's the flow of the Phariseeism. But then there's also the Sadducee. The person that kind of folds their arms says, well, I've heard this argument, come on. If you had my education, you would know that, you know, you've got to be a moron to believe the Bible. You know, you just kind of have this, this intellectual aura about yourself that sort of removes you and says, oh, I believe in God. I believe in spirituality. I just don't believe in any dynamic of transformation that can occur. It's all in your mind. And those two strains are everywhere in Christianity today. They're in the high church, the liberal church, the church that espouses a belief in God but does not claim the transformational power of His Spirit. And they're in churches that say one thing and live a different life and are constantly pushing people out, especially young people, because the young people look right through the balonialism. <laughs> of people who are pretending. So what are we going to be? Jesus said, watch out. Be careful. And he wanted his disciples to see this. And if he did, then I think he wants us to also. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Remember I said yeast is a small component that turns into something unstoppable. All errors of doctrine and lapses in Christian vitality start small. And they grow. So be careful. Get grounded, get connected, get discipled, and watch God go to work in your life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.